0: Hello and welcome to the 8th Rory O'Connor Podcast, published on the 23rd of July 2018, 9-11 in the Time of Trump, Part 1. This podcast is about the CIA's determined protection from arrest, right up till September the 11th 2001, of two of the alleged 9-11 hijackers. It's particularly appropriate that this is published on the 23rd of July, because that was the day in 2001 that Tom Wilshire, a CIA official, named Khalid al one of the alleged hijackers the CIA protected, as likely to be involved in the next Bin Laden-led terrorist attack. Wilshire found out that al was in the United States no later than the 22nd of August. Why Wilshire did nothing, and in fact was very likely directly involved in sabotaging an investigation to find al is a question that has never been as starkly posed in the popular media as it ought to have been. I will be reporting on elements of that journalistic failure and its underlying causes in Part 2 of 9-11 in the time of Trump. For now, it's tempting to ask if you're a fan of, say, Carol Cadwallader's journalism about the manipulations in the Brexit referendum and the 2016 presidential election, to just imagine that this is Carol Cadwallader speaking, or just to imagine that I'm any journalist you can respect. Because this isn't a sexy topic, the way, say, Carl Cadrology's topics are. But really all I'll ask for is an open mind while I convey the facts of the case. This reporting is essentially the collation and proper ordering of disparate points of information, never properly collated in the popular press. The information is contained in the 9-11 Commission Report, the Joint Intelligence Committee inquiry on pre-9-11 intelligence handling, the Department of Justice Inspector General's report on FBI performance before 9-11, and documents presented in a post 9 11 terrorism trial. There's also some information from popular press reports. Links and notes for this show, including all these reports and documents, can be found at my website, roryo'connorjournalist.com. If you learn something from listening, please do make a pledge to me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Rory O'Connor. I wish I could remember who it was who said, and I'm only loosely paraphrasing here, that curiosity is the lowest motive to wish to know something and that knowing is to be related to truth and to action. The fact is, many journalists found their curiosity about 9-11 was easily sated. If you wish to support a journalism seeking truth and at least potentially positive action, then do chip a few quid to Patreon. patreon.com forward slash Rory O'Connor and thanks. there's an unhealthy level of fable around a famous meeting of associates of Osama bin Laden that took place in Kuala Lumpur between the 5th and the 8th of January 2000. This was supposedly a meeting, maybe even the meeting, at which the September 11th attacks were planned in detail. Being so close to the Millennium celebrations and the security concerns that caused, the meeting is said to have worried US intelligence agencies no end. The idea here is of larger-than-life terrorists plotting dastardly deeds, But these were not supermen, and it's clear the CIA, in collaboration with the Malaysian authorities, was monitoring it all pretty closely, which surely means that to a great extent they had it under control. The CIA got wind of the planned meeting in late 1999, because the National Security Agency was listening to calls to and from the so-called Al-Qaeda communication switchboard in Sana'a, Yemen. The communication switchboard had been surveilled since 1996, because it was regularly called from Afghanistan by Osama bin Laden. Bin Laden called the switchboard, and instructions were then forwarded on from there. By this time, it was implicated in the bombings of US embassies in East Africa that had taken place the previous year, in '98. One of the bombers had the hub's phone number in his pocket, so even the FBI knew about the hub at this point, not just the NSA, which was already listening to the calls directly, and the CIA, which was getting reports from the NSA. This, again, makes it sound like a sophisticated nexus in the bin Ladenist operation, but fundamentally it was the home of an old comrade of bin Laden's. Also living there was Khalid Almadar, one of the future alleged 9-11 hijackers. He was married to the old comrade's daughter. Almadar made the trip to Kuala Lumpur. His trip was tracked, and while he was transferring through Dubai, his passport was photocopied. It contained a visa to enter the USA. When this information was passed to the CIA's Bin Laden tracking unit, called Alex Station, it naturally grabbed the attention of Doug Miller, an FBI agent seconded there, or detailed there, in intelligence agency parlance. So he drafted a Central Intelligence Report, or CIR, back to his FBI colleagues about al US visa. But a couple of hours later, he got an email saying, please hold off on the CIR, per Tom Wilshire. Tom Wilshire was the deputy chief of Alex Station. Doug Miller and Mark Rossini, the two FBI agents working at Alex Station, complained at the time about the order not to tell the FBI about the visa. After all, the FBI was tasked with operating against terrorism inside the states, where the CIA is bound in its charter not to operate. But their hands were tied because working at Alec Station meant abiding by the CIA's operational secrecy requirements. At the time, they were fed a line that the US visa was a diversion and that Almadar was due to be part of an attack in Southeast Asia. Then an internal CIA cable claimed that the US visa information had been hand-delivered to FBI headquarters. But there's no record of anyone from Alec Station turning up there, let alone delivering important information. Here is Tom Wilshire in 2002 replying to Congressman Richard Burr under oath before the Joint Intelligence Committee inquiry into pre-9-11 intelligence failures. He gave the evidence behind a screen and was only later identified as Wilshire.
1: At, uh, at this time, there was no attempt to put these individuals on the watch list, correct? That's right. No discussion. Uh, to the best of your knowledge,
2: uh, was the FBI ever notified To the best of my knowledge, the intent was to uh, notify the FBI, and I believe the people involved in the operation um, thought the FBI had been notified. Uh, Something apparently was dropped somewhere, and we don't know where that was.
0: An honest response from Wilshire would have mentioned that he headed that operation, that he originally ordered the visa information not to be passed on and that if there had been an intent to notify FBI headquarters of the US visa information, there was no reason not to include the FBI in the cable saying that it had been passed. There are two things to note here before getting into the meat and potatoes of the next 20 months leading up to 9-11. First, like all the later embarrassing incidents relating to Khalid Almodar, the withholding of the visa information was not a CIA intelligence failure, it was a decision to withhold intelligence. The bog-standard response, oh I'm sure mistakes happened, won't stand up by the end of this podcast. Nor will the bog-standard response, decisions may have been taken but no one could reasonably have foreseen that this would end in an attack. Second, as we'll see, like this visa withholding, almost all of these decisions were executed, though probably not taken, by Tom Wilshire and one close associate of his, Dina Corsi. And that puts a different spin on another comment Wilshire made to the Joint Intelligence Committee inquiry.
2: As I think it's become clearer through the Joint Inquiry staff, every place that something could have gone wrong in this, over, over a year and a half, it went wrong. All the processes that have been put in place, all the safeguards, everything else, it just it, they failed at every possible opportunity, nothing went right.
0: Wilshire was an accomplished liar. At the Koala Lumper meeting, Khalid Almadar met up with two people critical to this story. First up, Nawaf al-Hazmi, who was his alleged fellow hijacker on American Airlines Flight 77, which flew into the Pentagon. And secondly, Khalad bin Atash, who was already a suspect in the East Africa embassy bombings because he had made a martyrdom video of one of the bombers. The FBI later identified Khalad bin Atash as a mastermind in the USS Cole bombing that was to come in October 2000. Apart from operating inside the United States, the FBI is tasked with carrying out criminal investigations when there is an attack on US interests outside the United States. As you can imagine, when Khalid Bin Atash went from being a commoner garden FBI suspect to being a bombing mastermind, anyone who had spent any time with him became very interesting to FBI agents. And the thing is, and what makes the Kuala Lumper meeting so important, is that surveillance photos of Almadar al-Hazmi and Bin Atash together and separately were taken. And the way the CIA used these photos later on showed that the last thing they wanted was for the FBI to make a connection between Binatash on the one hand and the alleged future hijackers Almadar and Al-Hazmi on the other. As I've hinted, the Koala-Lumper meeting was treated as a big deal at the time it was happening. The National Security Advisor was informed of it, for example. Many pieces of testimony suggest that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, KSM, who was later called the mastermind of 9-11, but was already wanted in connection with the 1997 Bojinka plot to blow up multiple airlines over the Pacific, was at the meeting. A confirmed attendee was Hambali, the military head of the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Southeast Asia, known to the US through his involvement in the Bojinka plot. According to the Guantanamo files released by Bradley, now Chelsea Manning, Hambali, who is detained at Guantanamo, has told his captors that Kali Sheikh Mohammed was at the meeting. While not vital to our story, it does go to show that the CIA had no problems letting wanted men wander while keeping an eye on them. It's worth bearing that in mind. After the Kuala Lumpur meeting, Amidar Ahazmi and Binatash continued their adventure. On the 8th of January, the meeting ended and these three men flew to Bangkok, the CIA's Bangkok station acted very fishily indeed in monitoring the three men. It claimed neither it nor the Thai authorities could monitor them because they did not get to the airport in time. But in an intercepted phone call from Kuala Lumpur, Kalab Binatash had already booked ahead at a hotel where they did stay. The CIA could have looked there if in fact it did not. Meanwhile in Washington DC, the chief of Alec station, Richard Blee, undoubtedly one of the guilty men of 9-11, was briefing his CIA superiors up till January the 14th that the Kuala Lumpur meeting was still going on. He did not tell them what Alex Station knew, that the three men had flown to Bangkok. Whether he was giving his superiors plausible deniability in a complex operation, or genuinely keeping them in the dark, probably the first option, it does go to show something funny was still going on regarding al Al Al-Hazmi and Binatash. The CIA Bangkok station had requested that the three men be put on the Thai travel watch list, so it should have got the memo, and probably did, when al and Al-Hazmi flew from Bangkok to Los Angeles on January the 15th, 2000. Two Bin Laden associates landing in the United States ought to have caused some excitement, both in Bangkok and Alec stations, but nothing is recorded to have happened. Allegedly, it was just missed, and you know, mistakes happen. But Bangkok Station got a second opportunity to tell the rest of the CIA about the travel to Los Angeles early in February when a straightforward CIA officer in Kuala Lumpur sent an inconvenient cable to Bangkok Station asking what had happened with the three Bin Laden associates. Bangkok Station took its sweet time but another month later, on March 5th, it replied that Al-Hazmi and a companion had flown to Los Angeles. Given that they were taking this from a flight manifest, they surely knew that the other guy was Almadar, but this was just another little obfuscation. It was later reported that one CIA officer, probably the Koala Lumper officer who had asked about the Bin Laden associates in the first place, had read the cable about travel to Los Angeles with interest, as he said, indicating that he knew how important it was. It was also reported that in total 50 to 60 officers read cables about the travel of Bin Laden Associates between January and March, which obviously includes this March 5th cable about travel to Los Angeles. But George Tenet, the CIA director from 1997 till 2004, was out of the traps early with his explanation, which he gave while being savaged by a dead American sheep, Senator Dan Levin, whose voice we'll hear first in this clip from 2002. Note by the way that 11 doesn't even mention the companion Al-Madar.
3: On March 5th, the CIA learns that Hasmi had actually entered the United States on January 15th, <coughs> seven days after leaving the Al Qaeda meeting in Malaysia. So now the CIA knows Hasmi is in the United States, but the CIA still doesn't put Hasmi or Midhar on the watch list and still does not notify the FBI about a very critical fact, a known al-Qaeda operative. We're at war with al-Qaeda. A known al-Qaeda operative got into the United States. My question is... Do you know specifically why the FBI was not notified of that critical fact at that time? The the cable that came in from the field at the time, sir, was labeled information only, and I know that nobody read that cable. But my question is, do you know why the FBI was not notified of the fact that an Al Qaeda operative now was known in March of the year 2002 yes. to have entered the United States? Why was the CIA? Why did the CIA not? specifically notify the CIA? That's my question. The FBI. Sir, if we, were, we weren't aware of it, when it came in the headquarters, we couldn't have notified them. Nobody read that cable in March, in the March time frame. So that the cable that said that Hasmi had entered the United States came to your headquarters, nobody read it? Yes, sir. It was an information-only cable from the field, and nobody read that information-only cable. Shh.
0: So if you want to know why I'm saying that there is a lot hidden from the public and that aggressive investigation doesn't happen, after listening to that you can appreciate that one reason for this is that pompous senators are too afraid to say yeah right, even when the only other explanation for their follow-up question is that they're too thick to understand the first answer. Another is that CIA directors are encouraged to lie. 9-11 fable ignores or even more bizarrely just minimises all the evidence that the CIA tracked the alleged hijackers to the US and concentrates on Saudi Arabian support for al-Hazmi and al-Madar when they got there. Briefly it is true they were met by a Saudi spy Omar al-Bayoumi who put them up for a while in San Diego where they moved from Los Angeles very early on. He gave them money and later put them in touch with a friend of his who they went to live with. That guy, Abdusatar Sheikh, was actually an FBI informant, but seemingly wasn't asked and didn't tell his FBI liaison much about his new lodgers. By the way, what they were doing in San Diego was getting flying lessons, but they weren't any good and were actually known as dumb and dumber at their flight school, so that's why they are said to have ended up as muscle hijackers on American Flight 77 rather than being pilots. During this time, it's very possible the CIA was getting information on Al-Madar and al-Hazmi through Saudi sources, while maybe doing some monitoring on their own too. We don't know the details of what surveillance took place in the US. Naturally, the CIA has denied there was any, but it has lied so much about this case that there is no reason to take that at face value. What is really important is that they were in the US with the CIA's full knowledge, and I think that allows us to posit that some form of monitoring did take place. Similarly, if 9-11 was primarily an American operation, as I tend to think, it is useful, but not of earth-shattering significance, to note that tracking al and Al-Hazmi would have led the CIA to alleged hijackers on two other planes who they later lived with. It would also have led them to two of the alleged pilots who got IDs using the same address as they went on to live at in New Jersey in 2001. Two of the people they lived with in New Jersey flew down to Florida and met some other of the alleged pilots there. And so on and so on. Fundamentally, all the alleged hijackers' security was poor and easily penetrated. On the whole, it's more interesting to note that in February 2000, the CIA rejected help from an unnamed foreign intelligence agency in finding al and Al-Hazmi. Now, why would they do that if they didn't know where they were? And it is critically important to note that while they were in San Diego, al and al-Hazmi made calls back to the so-called Al-Qaeda switchboard in Yemen, where after all al wife and father-in-law lived. The landline used in these calls was registered in al-Hazmi's own real name, and the NSA had that name on a watch list. These calls have been the justification by President Bush at the time of the 2005 warrantless wiretapping scandal, and by President Obama after the Edward Snowden leaks, with suspicionless mass surveillance.
4: In the weeks following the terrorist attacks on our nation, I authorised the National Security Agency, consistent with US law and the Constitution, to intercept the international communications of people with known links links to Al-Qaeda and related terrorist organisations. Before we intercept these communications, The government must have information that establishes a clear link to these terrorist networks. This is a highly classified program that is crucial to our national security. Its purpose is to detect and prevent terrorist attacks against the United States, our friends and allies. As the 9-11 Commission pointed out, it was clear that terrorists inside the United States were communicating with terrorists abroad before the September 11th attacks. And the Commission criticized our nation's inability to uncover links between terrorists here at home and terrorists abroad. Two of the terrorist hijackers who flew a jet in the Pentagon, Nawaf al-Hamzi and Khalid al-Midhar, communicated while they were in the United States to other members of al-Qaeda who were overseas. But we didn't know they were here until it was too late.
5: This brings me to the program that has generated the most controversy these past few months. The bulk collection of telephone records under Section 215. Let me repeat what I said when this story first broke. This program does not involve the content of phone calls or the names of people making calls. Instead, it provides a record of phone numbers and the times and lengths of calls. Metadata that can be queried if and when we have a reasonable suspicion that a particular number is linked to a terrorist organization. Why is this necessary? The the program grew out of a desire to address a gap identified after 9-11. One of the 9-11 hijackers, Khalid al-Mindar, made a phone call from San Diego to a known al-Qaeda safe house in Yemen. NSA saw that call, but it could not see that the call was coming from an individual already in the United States. The telephone metadata program under Section 215 was designed to map the communications of terrorists so we can see who they may be in contact with as quickly as possible.
0: The Joint Intelligence Committee Inquiry's report on intelligence failures prior to 9-11 says information contained in these calls between San Diego and Yemen was passed on to the FBI, the CIA and other agencies. If that's true, it means it was important stuff because the NSA did not pass on every little trifle. But public information about what was passed on is non-existent. And according to the Joint Intelligence Committee, the NSA passed on this information without realising one half of the calls was in the US. Seemingly, finding out where the calls came from was a separate matter to listening to the contents of the calls. But the NSA's excuses for not tracing these calls between San Diego and the Yemen hub have been poor and inconsistent. Bear in mind here again that by 2000, the US government had already identified the Yemen Hub as critical to the 1998 East Africa embassy bombings, which killed 224 people, mostly African civilians, in the vicinity of the American embassies in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania and Nairobi in Kenya. So the Yemen Hub was a prime NSA collection target, though even at this point before the Cole bombing, why it had not been shut down is a good question. First. The NSA merely explained to Congress that before 9-11, as a matter of policy, it did not target suspected terrorists in the United States. It was allowed to do this with a warrant, but instead it said it regularly provided information on suspected terrorists to the FBI. That left the question why it didn't tell the FBI about these calls. So second, they explained in 2004 that neither the contents nor the physics of the calls suggested that the other end of them was in the United States. So there's a contradiction here. In one explanation, they knew one end of the cause was in the US and didn't follow up for that reason. And in the other, they didn't know the other end of the cause was in the US at all. I suppose you could say that the first answer is a recital of policy and the second is a specific response. But the NSA, which used to be said to stand for no such agency, is so secretive that there's no reason to take this at face value. What's more, evidence was presented during the East Africa embassy bombing trial, which took place in early 2001, that calls had been traced between the Yemen hub and Kenya, Afghanistan, and many other places around the world, but not America, allegedly. One is inclined to say, pull the other one. We don't know exactly what the relationship was between the CIA's protection of al and al-Hazmi in the US on the one hand and the NSA's failure to tell everyone about their phone calls to Yemen on the other. It could well have been a tandem operation. We do know that the popular justification for mass electronic surveillance right to the present day is a lie about al and al-Hazmi. Here is an important wrinkle in this story. Nawaf al-Hazmi stayed in the States until 9-11. But Khalid Almadar left again from June the 10th 2000 until he returned on July the 4th of all days in 2001. What was he doing? Well, Almadar is supposed to have been involved in assisting the muscle hijackers travel to the US, which required a lot of toing and froing between Yemen, Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan. But he is also alleged to have been involved in the attack on the USS Cole, which took place off Aden Harbor in Yemen on October the 12th, 2000, killing 17 American soldiers. Whatever about direct involvement, there is no doubt Almadar was circumstantially linked to the attack. A US investigator said after 9-11, that the Yemen hub, which after all he lived in, had been used by the coal bombers to put everything together, which probably means in organizational rather than bomb making terms and the FBI found out shortly after the coal bombing that it had been a rerun of an unsuccessful attack on the USS The Sullivans, which failed on January 3rd, 2000, when the boat that was supposed to carry the bomb to the US ship sunk as soon as it set off because the bomb was too heavy. Just as Almadar left for Malaysia very shortly after the attempt on the USS The Sullivans, he is said to have departed from Yemen very shortly after the USS coal attack. Above all, though, Almadar was linked to the coal attack through his association with Khalid bin Atash, who we've already come across as an attendee at the January 2000 Kuala Lumpur meeting, and who flew from there to Bangkok with Almadar and Al Hazmi. After the coal attack, the FBI identified bin Atash as one of its two masterminds. As I've already noted, that naturally made anyone associated with him of great interest to the Bureau, and that would have included Almadar. The FBI agents who investigated the coal attack came to suspect that a meeting of bin Laden associates had taken place somewhere in Southeast Asia in January 2000. Under interrogation by Yemeni authorities, Fahd al Khuso, who had been involved in the coal attack, admitted he had met bin Atash at that time in Bangkok and given him money. So the FBI's lead coal investigator, Ali Sufan, asked the CIA in November 2000. What it knew about a meeting around that time and place, and the CIA said nothing. When Sufan himself interrogated Al Kuso, he found out the name of the hotel the men had stayed at in Bangkok and checked its telephone records, which revealed calls between it and a payphone outside the apartment where the Koala Lumper meeting was held. So he asked the CIA again in April 2001, and again they said they knew nothing. And it was the same when he made his last, even more specific request for information in July 2001. And all this had the effect of preserving the CIA's exclusive hold over al-Hazmi and al its use of them as assets or sources, witting or not. Lawrence Wright, the journalist for the New Yorker who wrote about Sufan's requests for information, frustratingly doesn't specify who dealt with the requests, but logically it must have been Alex Station, who specialised in associates of Bin Laden. Tom Wilshire and other officers who had already kept the FBI in the dark about Almadar's visa must surely have been in the loop. Sufan's requests, which could have led the coal investigators to Almadar and to Al-Hazmi, still in the United States all this time, in a couple of hours, have never been reported on in any official government report not the 9-11 Commission report, not the Department of Justice Inspector General's report on how FBI employees handled intelligence before 9-11, and not the Joint Intelligence Committee report on pre-9-11 intelligence handling. But in fact, it's likely that the account in the original version of the Department of Justice Inspector General's report, which is by far the most detailed of them, has been classified, despite there being no continuing reason of security for the classification Sufan's requests for information about a meeting in Southeast Asia are just too damning. The way the CIA, throughout the course of 2001, used and abused the surveillance photos of Almadar and Al Hazmi taken in Kuala Lumpur the previous year is further evidence of its bad faith. Essentially, on two occasions, CIA officers showed individuals associated with the FBI photos of Almadar and Al Hazmi in order to check whether they could identify the alleged future hijackers. These can be thought of as fishing trips. The CIA's first fishing trip in January 2001 was with an informant based in Islamabad, used by both the CIA and the FBI. What happened is pretty farcical. The Justice Department account is that there was speculation between CIA officers that Almadar and Binatash were the same person. Now this speculation was ridiculous and certainly not sincere. The CIA knew enough to know for example that Binatash only had one leg and the two men didn't look very much alike each other facially. Tellingly the speculation wasn't shared with the Bureau because it was too off the wall. So with no Bureau agent present a CIA officer in Islamabad showed two photos to the source based on this speculation. The farcical part is that the source did not recognize Almadar, but wrongly identified Bin Atash in the al-Hazmi photo. So now the CIA had to take heed of the possibility that the source would identify Bin Atash to the FBI as having been with the two travellers to America at Kuala Lumper. But of course it didn't tell the FBI that the source, wrongly from the photo, but correctly in fact, had identified Binatash, the object of so much of the FBI's time and attention as having been a koala lumper. The second fishing trip happened on June 11th 2001. Tom Wilshire had actually transferred the previous month from being Deputy Chief of Alex Station to working as a CIA liaison at FBI headquarters in the International Terrorism Operations section. Nominally, he was supposed to help the FBI where it needed the CIA's assistance. In practice, as we'll see in the rest of this podcast, he was there with the ready cooperation of a number of officials in FBI headquarters as a mole, a saboteur and a blocker of the efforts of FBI agents in the field to investigate the coal attack, which would have led them to Almadar and Al-Hazmi's travel to the US. Again, this second fishing trip began with another speculation that seems insincere. What happened was that Wilshire and another CIA officer, Clark Shannon started to speculate in emails about Al Kuso, who, as we've already seen, was a low-level operative in the coal attack who had been arrested and interrogated by Ali Sufan, and had admitted giving money to Binatash in Bangkok in January 2000. What contacts, Wilshire and Clark Shannon, started to ask each other had Kuso had with other coal attackers? Wilshire had obtained three photos from the Koala-Lumper operation and he now gave them to Dina Corsi, an analyst in FBI headquarters, whose job was supposed to be to assist the coal investigators. But again, none of the three photos were actually of Alcuso, but were actually of Almodar and Al Hazmi. Now, if Wilshire and Shannon wanted to know if Fad al had attended the Kuala Lumpur meeting, they would have got all the Kuala Lumpur photos and shown them to FBI agents, one of whom, Ali Safan, had already interrogated him in Yemen. They would not just have given Corsi pictures of Al-Madar and al-Hazmi. Anyway, Corsi and Clark Shannon went to New York for this meeting on the 11th of June 2001, exactly three months before 9-11, the FBI coal investigators were all based there because all bin Laden related terrorism had been investigated from New York ever since the World Trade Center bombings in 1993. Corsi and Shannon asked two of the coal agents if they recognized anyone in the photos and whether they recognized Al Kuso in the photos. One of them tentatively said that Al Kuso might be in one of them, and then the FBI agents asked some straightforward questions who was in the photos? where and why were they taken, were there other photos and what was their connection with the coal attack. But Corsi and Shannon were not there to be forthcoming and the meeting descended into what was later described as a shouting match. Under heavy pressure, Corsi did give them Amador's name and Shannon told them that Amador was travelling on a Saudi passport at the time the photo was taken. But the coal investigators weren't told what would have meant something to them, that the picture was taken in Kuala Lumpur and that Binatash was there at the time. All they knew now was that Corsi and Shannon were hiding something from them. Incidentally, the June 11th meeting has sometimes been described by Mark Rossini, for example, as being when the CIA asked the FBI for help in finding Almadar and al-Hazmi. But all the evidence is to the contrary. Tom Wilshire's subsequent actions and Dina Corsi's in close cooperation with Wilshire make it clear that all they were looking to find out was, did the Cole investigators recognize Almadar and al-Hazmi? And all the investigators knew now was they needed to know about them. Replying to Congressman Richard Burr, Steve Bongart, one of the New York FBI agents who was there, describes what they knew after the June 11th meeting.
1: On June the 11th, 2001, the CIA uh, went to the New York office, office of the FBI uh, and, in fact, passed on to New York agents um, who led um, the Cole investigation. Am, am I correct? Yes, sir. Um, as again, these photographs were shown and discussed. Uh, the records show that Midhar's name uh, did come up. Yet we're unclear in the context that it came up. Can you help to clarify that? At uh, all?
6: Yes, sir. When these photos were shown uh, shown to us, we had information at the time that uh, one of our suspects had actually traveled to the same region of the world that uh, th- that this uh, this might have taken place. Uh, so we pressed uh, the individuals there for more information regarding the meeting. Usually, what I found is coincidences don't occur too much in this in this job. Usually, a lot of times, when things are the way they are, it's because that's pretty much the way they are. Um, so we pressed them for information. Now the other agents in the meeting recall um, they don't. Rec- one agent does not recall the name being uh, given up in a in a in, in the big meeting. There were numerous sidebars that happened. Uh, regardless of that, at the end of that meeting, it, some of them say it was just because I was able to get the, the name out of the, 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 uh, the analyst. Um, but at the end of that day, we knew the name Khaled El-Midhar, but nothing else.
0: months following the June 11th meeting, throughout June, July and August, Steve Bongart kept asking Dina Corsi, the analyst, for information about Almodar. Here's how he described it at
6: the congressional inquiry. In fact, i had had several conversations with the analyst after that because we we would talk on other matters and almost every time I would ask her, what's the story with the Midhar information? When's it going to get passed? Do we have anything yet? When's it going to get passed? Um, And each time I was told that the information had not been passed yet and the sense I got from her based on our conversations was that she was trying as hard as she could to get the information passed or at least the
0: ability to tell us about the information. What was the information Bongard should have got from Corsi? There were at least two, possibly three big things. Number one, Bongard should have got copies of the photos he was shown at that meeting. Corsi would not let him keep the copies shown at that time for absolutely no good reason at all. Her explanations after 9-11 reflect the fact that there was no reason not to give Bongart the photos. On the one hand, she said that despite Wilshire having given her the photos, they had still not been formally passed to the FBI. When Wilshire was asked about this, he abandoned her on this point, saying that there was no problem with passing it on inside the FBI, although I think we can safely say that he would not have been happy with it at the time. So her second explanation was that the investigators could not show them to the Yemeni authorities working on the cold case. Fine, but that should not have stopped her giving them to the FBI investigators for their own use. This was all bad faith on Corsi's part. Number two, another piece of information Corsi should have given Bongart was those NSA cables about Almadar from late 1999, which again linked Almadar to the Yemen Communications Hub, which was very important, and also said that he was due to go to Kuala Lumpur, which was critically important. Corsi had read these NSA cables. Her explanation for not passing them on, again, doesn't pass muster to pass them to FBI criminal investigators, she needed the approval of the NSA general counsel, the NSA lawyers in American parlance. So that was her excuse, but there are problems with it. For one thing, while approval was needed for criminal investigators on the Cole case, no approval was needed for intelligence agents associated with the Cole case. As in many investigations, including in Ireland and the UK, there were designated officers who were free to receive all kinds of information which they could then either decide to pass on or not to criminal investigators, depending on whether it might prejudice the investigation. There had been an intelligence officer at the June 11th meeting, But if Corsi was unaware of that, she was certainly aware that there were intelligence officers associated with the Cole case. The Department of Justice Inspector General's report actually makes an excuse for Corsi, saying that getting the lawyer's approval involved, quote, lengthy procedures. But as we'll hear, when she did later seek that approval, in very suspicious circumstances, it only took a day to get it. The stalling was deliberate. The possible third piece of information that Bongart should have got from Corsi was the identification of Khalad Binatash at Kuala Lumpur in January 2000. I say possible because it is not actually clear when Corsi learned that the Islamabad source had identified Atash as having been there, but an email she wrote on August the 22nd shows she was aware of it by then. There was a meeting on May the 29th which was attended by Dina Corsi, Clark Shannon, the CIA analyst, and Margaret Gillespie, an FBI analyst, detailed to Alex Station. They all later claimed not to recall anything about the meeting. Not telling Cole criminal investigators about the identification of the mastermind was a big deal, and worth forgetting, as it were. So this may have been the meeting when Shannon told Corsi. But equally, Wiltshire could have told her about it during lunch break in FBI headquarters, or when their shoulders bumped in the corridor, or whenever. At any rate, Corsi herself, an FBI analyst and not just the CIA, hid this information from the FBI agents to whom it was so important. Incidentally, it's fair enough to wonder, why did Corsi act as if when Wilshire asked her to jump, the only question in her mind was how high? And how did Wilshire carry such sway at FBI headquarters? One clue is that the chief of the International Terrorism Operations section, Michael Rollins, was a friend and colleague of Wilshire's. Mr. Rollins...
4: Thank you Mr Chairman. Before I begin my prepared remarks I would just like to say for the record that I am honoured and proud to follow an individual with whom I worked closely for the last several years and whom I consider to be one of the finest counterterrorism experts in the world.
0: There was no contradiction necessarily between having a job with Rollins as her boss and doing whatever Wilshire wanted her to do. More broadly whatever the motive what matters really is the actions and actions speak louder than words. Just before he moved to being Alex Station's mole in the International Terrorism section of the FBI in May 2001, Tom Wilshire instigated a little stalling back at Alex Station too. By the way, when considering the reason for his move to the FBI, the fact that Ali Sufan had been making increasingly specific requests for information about the Kuala Lumpur meeting might have been relevant. Trying to keep Sufan off the trail would have been a good enough reason to transfer. What Wilshire did on May the 15th, shortly before leaving for the FBI, was review the cables sent around the time of that Koala Lumper meeting. So he reread the cable about Almadar's US visa and the cable about the travel of Alhazmi and a companion, clearly Almadar, to Los Angeles. And what he didn't do after reading these was place the two men on a watch list or tell the FBI about them. The excuse he offered is quoted indirectly in the 9 11 Commission report. Tom Wilshire is referred to by his alias in the 9-11 Commission report, which is John.
5: Despite the U.S. links evident in this traffic, John made no effort to determine whether any of these individuals was in the United States. He did not raise that possibility with his FBI counterpart. He was focused on Malaysia. John described the CIA as an agency that tended to play a zone defense. He was worrying solely about Southeast Asia, not the United States.
0: As you might remember, Malaysia had been where the next attack had been supposed to happen in January 2000 when Wilshire first blocked the US visa information about Almadar. In the meantime, Almadar and Al Hazmi had travelled to the US, possibly just for some rest and relaxation, and then the coal bombing had happened in Yemen. So the Malaysia excuse was not a good one, and all the more unbelievable given that he was about to start working at the FBI, primarily a domestic agency. Instead of telling the FBI about the travel of al and a companion to the US, what Wilshire did was assign Margaret Gillespie, an FBI analyst and detailee at Alex Station, to review those files again, or rather he told other managers at Alex Station to give her that assignment while he was getting ready to vamoose into the FBI. By teeing up a second review, he was effectively setting up an excuse for his own inaction at this point, Not a good one, but given the weakness, in fact the probable cowardice, of the post-9-11 investigations, more than good enough as it turned out. Now, there was a bit of a difference between Gillespie and other FBI detailees, as Mark Rossini points out.
7: And the agency people loved her. Maggie was treated from the beginning like a real, CIA employee. I mean, she wrote CIR, she wrote TVs and TVXs, she actually, you know got the ticket, if you will, on a case or a subject and followed it. So Maggie was treated, well, of course, it was all women too. (laughs) Doug and I were the only two guys there, uh, really. Besides Rich and and Wilshire, Uh, we were the
0: only two men. As Steve Bongard points out more generally, there was always a danger with detailees.
6: Once an individual goes to the FBI or or vice versa, that individual becomes beholden just to that institution uh, that, 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 that they're going to.
0: Basically, Margaret Gillespie was on side, and that's how she acted. Whereas Wilshire read the cables about the US visa and the US travel on one day, Gillespie's so-called review panned out very differently. For one thing, Wilshire told her to give it a low priority, to do the research in her free time. Gillespie elaborated on this by saying that her main priority was Yemen, where it was feared that US personnel who had been drawn there after the coal attack might come under a follow-up attack. But given that this review was intended to find details about where the next attack might happen, you might think it would have gone faster than it did. Here's how it went in any event. Early in June 2001, Gillespie looked at an information database called Intel Link, which the CIA shared with other agencies in the intelligence community, including the FBI. But she didn't look at Hercules, an internal CIA database which contained information the FBI didn't have such as the NSA cables about Almadar's travel to Kuala Lumpur, so she could be guaranteed not to learn anything currently being sought by the FBI's coal investigators. Someday in the second half of July 2001, so again this is about two months after she was given the assignment, Gillespie found a cable referencing Almadar's possession of a US visa, and very conveniently, on the same day, also found the cable saying that the visa information had been hand-delivered to FBI headquarters, so there was no need to follow up on it. And then, happily, on August 21st, three weeks before 9-11, Gillespie looked at the March 5th, 2000 cable about the travel of al and a companion, who she was quickly able to identify as Almadar, to Los Angeles, and she finally let the Immigration and Naturalisation Service and the FBI know that these two bin Laden associates were in the country. Her explanation for this was that after slowly looking at the information over the course of four months, at this point, quote, it all clicks for me, end quote. But Gillespie had already been copied in to correspondence between Wilshire and another CIA officer about the travel to Los Angeles in May 2001. So why didn't it click for her then? Why had it allegedly not clicked for Wilshire at that time either? Even if Gillespie didn't read about the alleged hijackers' US travel then, All the information points against this having been a real cable review. There is the length of time it took when it was completed by Wilshire in a day. There is the fact that she was working with Wilshire, who was demonstrably already hiding information about Almadar and al-Hazmi from the Bureau. And finally, frankly, there is the suspiciousness of the date shortly before 9-11. She herself was also not a reliable witness, claiming that she wasn't aware in January 2000 of the Koala-Lumper meeting, despite having accessed cables about it at the time. As the Department of Justice account puts it, using Maggie Gillespie's pseudonym Mary in its report, and I don't think we should discount the possibility of an ironic tone here, quote, We question the amount of time that elapsed between Mary's assignment and her discovery of the important information. As discussed previously, however, Mary's assignments were directed and controlled by her managers at the CTC. CTC stands for Counter Terrorist Centre, a part of the CIA of which Alex Station was a part. And here's Tom Wilshire's convoluted description of Gillespie's review.
2: There was a miss in January, there was a miss in March. We've acknowledged that. What happened after that was, I think, in part... Uh, a function, stuff like that should normally emerge during the course of a file review if something provokes the file review. Once that file review is provoked, the information is readily recoverable. That's how I found what I found when I found it, kind of thing. But, but um, the story kind of emerged in dribs and drabs because um, there was no one person who reconstructed the whole file.
0: No mention, again, that he caused the so-called miss in January. No mention that he gave Gillespie the assignment. No mention that he read all the relevant cables just before giving her the assignment and could have just handed them to her. And there was one person who reconstructed the whole file, and it was Wiltshire. Incidentally, given how flimsy the excuses seem, I suppose it's just possible that a listener might perversely think, the excuses are so bad, there wasn't any wrongdoing really, they were clearly just idiots. Or the listener might think that I'm making a mountain out of a molehill. But they were doing wrong, terrific wrong, and the reason their excuses were bad is because there were no good ones. Equally, you may be thinking in all this something like, look, these sound like very irresponsible actions. Hiding Al-Madar and al-Hazmi was undoubtedly selfish and illegal from the perspective of 2000 and early 2001, and tragic from a post-9-11 perspective. But where's the beef? Where do we get from all that to certain CIA officers were content to let September the 11th happen? Well, all that becomes clear from July 2001 onwards. That July, Tom Wilshire wrote three strange emails. He was detailed to the FBI, but he wrote them back to Alex Station and the CIA's counter-terrorist centre generally. And it's as likely that he wrote them in Langley, CIA headquarters, as at J. Edgar Hoover Building, where the FBI were headquartered. Doubtless he wrote more than these three emails, but these are the ones on the public record. And what they do is damn him and his boss Richard Blee, the chief of Alex Station, out of Wilshire's own mouth. The first of them was sent on the 5th of July, which was the day after Almadar returned to the United States after his 13 months of journeying between Yemen, Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan. That may or may not be a coincidence. Here's how this July 5th email was described in the Department of Justice Inspector General's report. He wrote that there was a potential connection between the recent threat information and the information developed about the Malaysia meetings in January 2000, in addition, he noted that in January 2000, when Almadar was travelling to Malaysia, key figures in the failed attack against the USS The Sullivans and the subsequent attack against the USS Cole, also were attempting to meet in Malaysia. Therefore, he recommended that the Cole and Malaysia meetings be re-examined for potential connections to the current threat information. First of all, it's worth unpacking that the key figures in the attacks on US ships are al Kuso, who failed to get to Malaysia because he lacked a visa, and above all, Khalid bin Atash. So a connection is being made here between Bin Atash and Al-Madar. Second, the recent threat information didn't just relate to Malaysia, but to the United States. Lawrence Wright, the New Yorker writer, wrote in his book The Looming Tower that Wilshire was privy to the reports that Al-Qaeda was planning a Hiroshima in America. Third, what would be found if the Malaysia meetings were re-examined, the way Wilshire said they should be? The information about Almadar's U.S. visa, which Wilshire originally sat on. The U.S. travel information, which 50 CIA officers had read. And all of this he had read again in May 2001. So what's really going on here is something like this. Wilshire knows Margaret Gillespie's so-called cable review is a delaying tactic. In fact, he writes about it as if it didn't exist, which in reality it didn't. And he's nervous, specifically about Almadar, who he names and he's indirectly referring to cables about Almadar's travel to the US, which is a long way from Malaysia. Wilshire's 2nd July email was sent on the 13th of July. He began the email by saying, OK, this is important, and went on that he had just read the cable from January 2001, in which it was reported that the source in Islamabad had identified Khalad bin Atash in the January 2000 Kuala Lumpur photos. Khalad, Wilshire said, is a major league killer who orchestrated the coal attack and possibly the Africa bombings. And again, Wilshire recommended looking at the Malaysia meetings without mentioning the Almadar and Al-Hazmi travel information, which were the most important things about it. And he finished up by asking counter-terrorist centre managers, can this information be sent via CIR to the Bureau? That's Central Intelligence Report, in case you've forgotten. Now, there's a lot that's interesting here. He's asking his CIA colleagues to tell the FBI that Binitash was in Malaysia. But after 9-11, the CIA claimed it had given the FBI that information as soon as the identification was made, in January 2001. After all, the CIA said, the source in Islamabad who made the identification was a joint source, used equally by both agencies. But that CIA claim was just a normal lie, I guess. Another thing, as I already mentioned is that while Binatash had indeed been at the meetings in Kuala Lumpur, the Islamabad source had actually identified him wrongly from a photo of al-Hazmi, what I referred to as a farcical mistake. Now Wilshire knew which photos had been shown to the Islamabad source, so after the identification from those photos happened, he said, someone, i.e. the Islamabad source, someone saw something that wasn't there. Effectively, he knew Khaled Atash's face better than the source did. But now he's saying it's important that the identification of Khaled, even from the wrong photo, be sent to the Bureau, because what's important is the information that would lead them to know about the meetings and ultimately to tracking down Almadar and Al-Hazmi. And again, Wiltshire is recommending a cable review, which he had already informally assigned to Maggie Gillespie, but isn't happening. By the way, one of the recipients of this July 13th email was Richard Blee, the chief of Alex Station. That's what you'd expect, given that he was Wilshire's boss and Wilshire was asking for something to happen. But the point is that the names of the recipients of these emails generally weren't mentioned in the reports. In this case, though, the 9-11 Commission report notes that Blee referred to Wilshire's email in another email to a colleague on the same day. Except on the whim of the post-9-11 investigators, we don't know who knew what when, but this time we can be certain that Blee took stock of the request and did not respond to Wilshire's request to let the FBI know about the identification of Binatash. We can also say that Blee received and saw the most important document about Alex Station's protection of the alleged hijackers, which is the last of Tom Wilshire's July emails sent on the 23rd of the month. Blee saw it because it was a follow-up to the 13th of July email, and he acknowledged further correspondence about it. If you want to understand why it is possible to say that Tom Wilshire and Richard Blee were running an operation involving Al-Madar and al-Hazmi, that they knew would assist a terrorist attack, you need to take deeply into your head and heart Tom Wilshire's July 23rd email. Fortunately, it's not difficult to understand. Here's how it was described in a document presented as evidence in the post 9-11 trial of Zacharias Musawi. Allow me to annotate the passage by saying that Tom Wilshire is referred to by his alias in that document and a number of other reports, which is John. CTC stands for Counter Terrorist Centre, a part of the CIA of which Alex Station was a part, and UBL stands for Osama Bin Laden. John emailed a CTC manager inquiring as to the status of his request to pass information to the FBI. In the email, John noted that, quote, when the next big op is carried out by UBL hardcore cadre, Khaled will be at or near the top of the command food chain and probably nowhere near either the attack site or Afghanistan. That makes people who are available and who have direct access to him of very high interest. Khalid Midhar should be very high interest anyway, given his connection to the end quote. There are a number of possibilities regarding what the redacted section could be. It could be a reference to the coal attack itself, which he could be linked to independently of Binatash. It could be a reference to the Yemen communications hub, where he lived. It could even be a reference to his previous US travel. Whatever about the redaction, what Wilshire is saying in the email is that he believes that Almodar is of very high interest in connection with the next big op. And given the fact that he's saying that Binatash will not be at the attack site, the implication is that al will be, that he will be directly involved in the next Bin Ladenist attack. As far as the official 9-11 story goes, he was right about that. We'll see why this means that we can say with no doubt that Tom Wilshire facilitated the September 11th attacks when we come to the time after August the 21st, 2001, when, as I've already mentioned, Maggie Gillespie officially discovered that al was in the United States, and Wilshire officially learned this the following day. Apart from its explosive content, a significant clue that this July 23rd email is important was the fact that for years after 9-11 it didn't appear in the various government reports on 9-11. Not the Congressional Inquiry report, not the 9-11 Commission report, and not the Justice Department Inspector General's report. As I mentioned briefly, it only came into the public domain during the trial of Zacharias Musawi in 2006, and it was introduced as evidence by the defence. Very briefly, Musawi was arrested in August 2001 and was in custody during the attacks. Apart from being accused of planning a second wave attack after 9-11, he was accused of withholding information that could have prevented 9-11. So a large part of his lawyer's work in making sure that Musawi avoided the death penalty was showing that the government had lots of other ways to prevent 9-11. The July 23rd email was naturally quite useful to them because it showed that Tom Wilshire had predicted the identity of one of the supposed hijackers. Rather than have Wilshire testify in court, a document was prepared and signed off on by both the prosecution and defence called the Substitution for the Testimony of John. Which includes the 5th of July email, the 13th of July email, and the story of Wilshire's assigning the cable review to Maggie Gillespie. All of this in exactly the same language as the Department of Justice Inspector General's report on the FBI's pre 9 11 intelligence handling, which we know was one source used by Musawi's defence. But the substitution for Tom Wilshire's testimony also includes the July 23rd email, so it's a fair bet that the July 23rd email is in the classified version of the IG report and was specifically excluded from the unclassified version. That goes some way to showing how important it was. When I read these emails, I cannot decide what to think about what Tom Wilshire intended by them. The emails are so damning in the light of his subsequent actions that I tend to believe the real whiff of fear coming off them. Seeing as he foresaw an attack happening, he was probably worried he would be blamed given all the withholding of important information he had demonstrably been involved in. He may have started to foresee the consequences of just following orders. On the other hand, it is possible he felt certain there would be no accountability, if only because that would entail accountability for everyone else in the CIA. And it's possible he was just writing these emails to look good. And in that he succeeded. During the Congressional inquiry on pre 11 intelligence, he was praised for writing the 13th of July email.
1: On July the 13th, I, I think it was an important day because in fact our CIA uh, officer uh, began to put some of the pieces together that had, that had bugged him. And that led to uh, finding some of the lost cables or the misfiled cables. Um, that led to decisions, uh, decisions that did put people on watch lists, uh, decisions that did begin the ball rolling towards an all-out press by the Bureau uh, to look for individuals uh, that for numerous reasons, we had not been able to raise to this profile at that time.
0: But whether he was happily facilitating an attack or not, it is again demonstrably the case that in August 2001, after Maggie Gillespie told Dina Corsi and the FBI, who we've already seen is unreliable, that Amidar and Al-Hazmi were in the United States, that Wilshire oversaw all the actions that meant that the FBI coal investigators could not arrest them. We'll come to the details shortly, but he was there for that and he was responsible. He did continue to follow orders, despite his worries and the protestations in these July emails. We do not need to know what was going on in his head to know that actions speak louder than words. The last thing to consider when thinking about Tom Wilshire's panic about Almadar in July, that Almadar would be involved in the next big op, is where they thought that next big op might happen. And we've seen Wilshire claimed to Mark Rossini and Doug Miller during the millennium period, and to investigators after 9-11, that he thought there might be an attack against US interests in Southeast Asia, probably Malaysia, and Wilshire was not specifically concerned about an attack in the territorial United States. But there's no reason to believe this, given Wilshire's reading about the US travel in May, and also given the fact that the coal bombing had happened in Yemen, What's more, Rich Blee, Wilshire's boss, was giving different briefings when meeting his superiors. The primary target he claimed to be worried about was Israel, but also other US targets around the world. If Wilshire, who had been Blee's direct subordinate, was so adamantly worried about Malaysia, this should have turned up in the briefings. According to the famous Bob Woodward, in his book State of Denial, together with follow-up reporting after that book's release, Blee knew there was a good chance of an attack in America. On the 10th of July, Blee and his CIA bosses rushed to the White House. One of the very few times the CIA director George Tenet did this in his seven years in the job. And Blee opened his emergency briefing by saying there will be a significant terrorist attack in the coming weeks or months. He said that the attack could be spectacular and happen simultaneously at multiple locations and that it could be inside the United States. And in his memoir, Tennet wrote about the high-threat environment in the summer of 2001 and specifically about a briefing given by Blee, who he called Rich B. Blee's name only became public in 2011. Quote, Imagine how we felt at the time living through it. And imagine how I and everyone else in the room reacted during one of my updates in late July, when, as we speculated about the kind of attacks we could face, Rich B suddenly said with complete conviction, They're coming here. I'll never forget the silence that followed. End quote. Effectively, that silence lasted until September the 11th. Amadar had arrived back in the States on July the 4th. Wilshire had sent Blee a flurry of emails about him that month, a coincidence of one kind or another. Hazmi had entered the country in January 2000, which the CIA officially knew about two months later, but most likely as it happened. And by July 2001, Alhazmi was living with some of the alleged future hijackers, As Kevin Fenton's excellent book, Disconnecting the Dots, about Alex Station's handling of the hijackers says, Blee had good reason to say they're coming here. They were already here. August 21, 2001, at the end of the alleged months long Malaysia Meeting Cable Review, the FBI analyst detailed at the CIA, Margaret Gillespie, found the March 5, 2000 cable from Bangkok saying Al Hazmi and a companion had entered the US in early January 2000. She quickly identified the companion as Almadar. She then looked at travel records and found that Almadar had re entered the country on July the 4th and that there had been no record of al-Hazmi's departure from the country. Gillespie told Dina Corsi, and if he didn't already know about it, Tom Wilshire, that al-Hazmi and Almodar were in the United States on the following day, August the 22nd. Interestingly, around this time, Zacharias Moussaoui was arrested by FBI agents at a flight school in Minneapolis on suspicion that he was plotting terrorism. His case shot right to the top of the CIA. George Tenet, the director, received a briefing with a slide headlined Islamic Extremist Learns to Fly. But the case of the two alleged hijackers never got the same attention, even though it was arguably a lot more clear-cut in terms of the danger posed. From August the 22nd until September the 11th, a very important fact throughout the story is that Corsi had become aware that Khalid Bin Atash had been at the meeting in Malaysia. We know this only because Corsi mentioned it in one email on August the 22nd to a New York FBI agent known to us only as Glenn, but she did not mention it to any colleague actively working on the Cole investigation like Steve Bongart or Ali Soufan. Corsi's August the 22nd email to Glenn was, says the Justice Department Inspector General's report, the first reference in any FBI document to the identification of Khalad in the Kuala Lumpur photographs. As we saw while Corsi was stalling Bongard on information after the June 11th meeting, it's not clear when Corsi learned about the identification. All the Inspector General's report says, using Dina Corsi's alias in the report Donna, Donna was unable to recall how she first discovered the information on the Collad identification. We were unable to find any documents or other evidence clarifying this issue. The Cole investigation was the most important investigation being conducted by the FBI at that time. Any link between Binatash and Almadar would have made finding Almadar in the three weeks before 9-11 a much higher priority. Corsi herself was aware of the importance of the information. According to the Justice Department account, quote, she said that she was focused on the identity and whereabouts of Khalad since he was the purported mastermind of the Cole attack. None of the reports question explicitly her failure to pass on this identification. The fact that she told a colleague of the New York Coal agents who were very interested in this does show that what we can fairly call a conspiracy was nonetheless potentially leaky. But it didn't leak. Glenn didn't tell his New York colleagues and Corsi never mentioned it to them either. If you wish to adduce it as evidence that there was no concerted hiding of information, nevertheless, that information never got to the people who really wanted it and needed it. There is a good chance that Corsi knew that with Glenn, who we know nothing else about, the Binatash identification would go no further. At any rate, here is how, according to the Justice Department Inspector General's report, Tom Wilshire found out that Amadar was in the country. Instead of using their aliases, I'll use their real names. Margaret Gillespie and Dina Corsi met with Tom Wilshire on August 22nd in his office at FBI headquarters to discuss their discovery that Almadar had recently entered the country and there was no record of his departure. All of them said they could not recall the specifics of the conversation, but they all agreed that they realised it was important to initiate an investigation to determine whether Almadar was still in the United States and locate him if he was. What this indicates is that from August the 22nd onwards, Tom Wilshire knew everything necessary to thwart the September 11th attacks. That Almadar was very high interest, likely to be involved in the next big op, as he said on July the 23rd, and crucially, that he was in the United States. So there was every likelihood the attack would happen in the United States. But Wilshire seemingly didn't tell Corsi or anyone at the FBI how important catching Almadar was. Corsi and Gillespie might be expected to have remembered that if he had mentioned it, not that they would have told the truth about it. Nonetheless, this does mean that Corsi, for all the bad actions she committed, cannot reliably be said to have had the full picture of how much danger her actions were inviting, and that allowed Wilshire to direct her to sabotaging the investigation to find Almodar. He was involved in that sabotage himself too. Here's how it happened. As we've seen, Alex Station's protection of the alleged hijackers had already undergone a number of crises. Just for example, Doug Miller's draft cable to the FBI in January 2000 about Almodar's visa meant that he had to be ordered not to send it, so there was an incriminating email saying please hold off on sending it. From January 2001 onwards, the CIA had to hide the identification of Binatash as having been in Malaysia the previous January and there was Steve Bongart's pressure for information about Almadar since the June the 11th meeting. There was a final serious crisis in late August 2001. On August the 28th, Steve Bongart was accidentally forwarded Dina Corsi's email to the New York FBI office saying that Almadar and al were in the United States and that an intelligence investigation ought to be commenced. By the way, as you can see, Corsi had taken four working days after she had found out that these Bin Laden associates were in the country before beginning to organise an investigation. So even if she wasn't convinced the way Tom Wilshire was that Almodar would be involved in the next terrorist attack, she was still taking her time. Anyway, Bongart recognised Almadar's name, and the crisis began when Bongart said he wanted in on the investigation as a cold case criminal investigator. Vongart wanted the investigation into finding Almadar to be a criminal investigation specifically as a subfile to the Cole investigation. The two men could have been arrested as material witnesses in the Cole case. Corsi actually said he would be fired if he didn't delete the email from his account. He did delete the email, but obviously that didn't shut down the argument. Apart from allowing Bongart to be involved in the investigation, what was at stake much more importantly in having a criminal investigation to find the future alleged hijackers was that for bureaucratic reasons it would allow the New York FBI to assign more agents to the investigation. Also the investigative tools that a criminal investigation allowed like grand jury subpoenas were much quicker and easier to use than intelligence investigation tools like national security letters. The reason Corsi gave for saying that it had to be an intelligence investigation was that the information that led the FBI to the hijackers had come from intelligence channels, the CIA and the NSA. Specifically, this was a reference to the CIA's early 2000 cables about their travel and also the late 1999 NSA cables about Almidar's travel to Kuala Lumpur. Therefore, Corsi argued, restrictions on giving intelligence to criminal agents applied. After 9-11, this supposed barrier on using intelligence sources in criminal investigations became famous. The conventional wisdom says that the FBI got its interpretation of the rules wrong. Although she is rarely specifically mentioned, the conventional wisdom says Dina Corsi got her interpretation of the rules wrong. And this became the standard lazy explanation right up to the present day for why the FBI didn't catch Al-Madar and al-Hazmi in the days before the attack. The official MI5 historian, Christopher Andrew, repeats it without question in his history of intelligence, The Secret World, which was published this year. The idea was that the FBI misinterpreted a real set of rules called The Wall, capital W, which did put certain restrictions on sharing intelligence with criminal investigators. The idea that an honest misinterpretation of The Wall prevented the arrest of the hijackers is amongst the biggest barriers to understanding how 9-11 was enabled. So we need to have a look at what the wall really was. First off, just to recap, the wall was a set of internal FBI regulations governing the sharing of a specific type of intelligence with criminal investigators. It arose after the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act called the FISA Act, was passed in 1978. As its name suggests, the FISA Act regulated the surveillance of people in the United States in cases where there was no reasonable suspicion that a crime had been committed, no probable cause to believe that a crime had been committed, as the US Constitution puts it. It regulated surveillance instead where the FBI believed that someone was the agent of a foreign power and sought a surveillance warrant for that reason. Occasionally though, evidence of a crime was found during investigations carried out using FISA warrants. At trial, defence lawyers always asked for this evidence to be thrown out, as it had been gathered using a warrant that was easier to obtain. Judges always denied these requests. But nonetheless, by 2001, information gathered under FISA warrants had to be approved by a federal prosecutor to be passed to FBI criminal agents. You'll have to forgive that digression, because as you will have noted, none of the information on which the alleged hijackers' arrest and prosecution could be based had been obtained under a FISA warrant. It had come from the CIA and the NSA. A footnote in the 9-11 Commission report sums up the whole picture this way. There was no broad prohibition against sharing information gathered through intelligence channels with criminal agents. This type of sharing occurred on a regular basis in the field. The FISA court's procedures did not apply to all intelligence gathered, regardless of collection method or source. Moreover, once information was properly shared, the criminal agent could use it for further investigation. In fact, the guidelines on FBI foreign intelligence operations said that whether a FISA warrant was being used or not, if there was a reasonable indication that a crime had been or even might be committed, federal prosecutors had to be notified, who would then inform criminal agents. Even apart from their connection to the cold attack, the mere presence of al and al-Hazmi, two bin Laden associates, in the US in a time of high threat, could be taken as evidence that a crime might be committed. So on the same day he found out that they were in the US, August the 28th, Steve Bongart asked for a lawyer's advice about the wall which he saw with crystal clarity did not apply. He also saw how important the issue was. It's worth quoting an email he sent to Corsi at this time. By the way, Title III is the name of the usual warrant for electronic surveillance when there is a reasonable suspicion in relation to a crime. Here's Bongart's email, some of which he read in the Joint Intelligence Committee. Dina, where is the wall defined? Isn't it dealing with FISA information? I think everyone is still confusing this issue. I know we have discussed this ad nauseam, but the wall concept grew out of the fear that a FISA would be obtained as opposed to a Title III. Whatever happened to this?
6: Someday someone will die. All or not, the public will not understand why we're not more effective in throwing every resource we had at certain "quote unquote" problems.
0: Bongart was seeking a legal opinion on two questions: one, did the search for Almadar have to be an intelligence investigation? And two, if found, could Almadar be interviewed in the presence of a criminal agent? Dina Corsi contacted Sherry Sable, an FBI lawyer in the National Security Law Unit (NSLU), and Corsi relayed what Sable supposedly said back to Bongart. In answering the first question, Corsi and Sable agreed after 9-11 that Sable had wrongly advised that the search for Almodar had to be an intelligence investigation. But whose fault that was depends on whether Corsi mentioned the salient facts of the case, the identification of Binatash at Koala Lumpur and the fact that Almodar was with him there. Given her withholding of that information from FBI criminal agents, there is every reason to doubt that Corsi did tell Sable those salient facts. No documents were found after 9-11 showing how Corsi presented the case to Sable, and there is nothing in the public domain about how Sable remembers her consultation with Corsi, but this was a vital thing to investigate. The advice given on the second question, whether a criminal agent could be present during an interview of Almadar, was a bone of contention between Corsi and Sable after 9-11. Claiming to be relaying Sable's advice, Corsi wrote back to Bongart, quote, If Almadar is located... The interview must be conducted by an intel agent. A criminal agent cannot be present at the interview. Cannot is in all caps. This clearly contradicts the law and sables later testimony. The 9-11 commission report said in an end note, the NSLU attorney denies advising that the agent could not participate in an interview and notes that she would not have given such inaccurate advice. The attorney told investigators that the NSA caveats would not have precluded Criminal agents from joining any search for Almadar, or from participating in any interview. The stoutness of Sable's denial that she said a criminal agent could not be present at an interview is reinforced by the testimony of the FBI General Counsel Larry Parkinson to the 9/11 Commission Report. A memorandum of his testimony says. When told that Dina Corsi alleged that NSLU had told her that no criminal agents could be involved in the search for the two men and none could participate in any interview if they were found, Parkinson said he would be shocked if anyone in NSLU gave such advice. He said there would have been no problem with a criminal agent hopping in on the search or participating in an interview. There was no FISA on these individuals, so no internal wall would have been applicable. Everyone seems clear on the law here except Corsi. The suspicion has to be that Corsi was still working to make Almadar and Al-Hazmi's arrest impossible, or if by some chance they were arrested, to make sure that their plans didn't reach the highly motivated Cole investigators who would stop an attack. In an end note, the 9-11 Commission report says, using Corsi's alias in that report, quote, Jane did not copy the attorney on her email to the agent, so the attorney did not have an opportunity to confirm or reject the advice Jane was giving to the agent. End quote. I think it is reasonable to say that in noting this, the report was making more than just a note on proper procedure. The report was saying more than just that Sable should have been able to have a look at what Corsi represented Sable's advice to be, for the sake of total accuracy. Because this was a simple matter. Could a criminal agent be at an interview or not? And Corsi put it in all caps. A criminal agent cannot be present at the interview. The unavoidable conclusion the conclusion that I believe the Commission was hinting at is that Corsi faked a critical legal opinion. So the wall, the way Corsi used it, was not just a bureaucratic befuddlement that everyone would regret after 9 11 It was a deliberate lie that had the effect of keeping the alleged hijackers free. After relaying the supposed legal opinion, Corsi ordered Bangart to stand down from the search for Almadar and Al Hazmi. In fact, As Lawrence Wright tells the story in his book, The Looming Tower, there was one final conference call in the fight over how the investigation should be conducted. On this call, Corsi told Bongart to stand down, but so did a CIA supervisor from Alex Station. Now, what was a supervisor from Alex Station doing in this call about what was supposed to be an internal FBI administrative matter? And the real question is, was this Tom Wilshire? Almost certainly, given how closely Wilshire was working with Corsi at this time but whether it was Wilshire or not it tells us that Alex Station's protection of the alleged hijackers was still going on a week after they told the FBI about them in the high threat environment with about two weeks to go before 9-11. One of Bongard's last comments to Corsi and the CIA supervisor about Almadar during the conference call was if this guy is in the country it's not because he's going to fucking Disneyland and I think Wilshire might have agreed with that. On August the 30th, eight months after the identification of Khalad bin Atash in the koala lumper photos, the FBI received a formal notification from the CIA about it. As the Justice Department Inspector General's report notes, this is the first record documenting that the source's identification of Khalid in the koala lumper photographs was provided by the CIA to the FBI. This despite the fact that the source, i.e. the Islamabad source, was approved to be used by the FBI and also despite the fact that Dina Corsi, an FBI analyst after all, was seemingly already aware of it for an indeterminate amount of time, and first mentioned it in an email to Glenn that she wrote on August 22nd. The notification was made at the request of Dina Corsi, and was passed to the FBI through a CTC representative to the FBI, according to the Justice Department Inspector General. That would be one way of describing Tom Wilshire. The CIA notification told the FBI to get in touch if the FBI didn't have the photographs that had been shown to the Islamabad source. The source had been shown two of the three photos that were shown to Steve Bongart. I hope you can see how important that is, because it means that if Bongart had been shown the photos in which the Islamabad source had identified Khalid bin Atash, he would have seen that the other person in them was Khalid Almadar, whose photo Corsi had told him he had been shown. Vanguard would have been able to point out the clear connection between the two men. Amazingly, but I hope not too amazingly at this point, there is no record that this identification was passed to the Cole investigators before 9-11. The identification would have been a cause of great excitement to them. Given that Dina Corsi made the request, it was surely she who received the notification and continued her normal practice of sitting on important information. So, Picture the following scenario according to which Dina Corsi gives Steve Bongart all the information she has and he is entitled to on the day she officially receives it. Number 1. On August 28th Steve Bongart is sent the NSA cables linking Almadar to the Yemen communications hub and to the Kuala Lumpur meeting. Number 2. On August 30th Bongart is informed that Khalad bin Atash was identified as being at the Kuala Lumpur meeting and is sent the pictures on the basis of which the Islamabad source made the identification. Bongart immediately recognises that the photos are two of the three he had been shown at the June 11th meeting, and knows therefore that the other person is Khalid al was linked to the mastermind of the coal bombing. If it had happened like that, Bongart could have argued on unimpeachable grounds that the search for Khalid al and Nawaf al-Hazmi should be a part of the coal criminal investigation, and he would have caught them on September 11th after the attack Vongart turned up leads that would have led him to the men within hours, and don't forget the two men lived with other alleged hijackers. Here's how the top White House counter-terrorist official at the time, Richard Clark, puts it. He may or may not be bullshitting about the possibility of a public sweep, and Clark was not one of the good guys, not unambiguously anyway, but about how easy it would have been to make arrests, he was right.
7: And by the way, if they had even as late as September 4th told me we would have conducted a massive sweep we would have conducted it publicly we would have found those assholes there's no doubt in my mind even with only a week left they were using credit cards in their own names they were staying in the Charles Hotel in Harvard Square for heaven's sake we would have found them if we'd taken those pictures and put them out on the AP wire those guys would have been arrested within 24 hours.
0: Have you asked George Tenet or Colfer Black or Richard Blee about any of this after the fact? No.
7: It kind of, the facts tripped out to you over time, right? Over these investigations and then you started to Took seeing,
5: a while. Yeah. You
7: know, and so you, you've never approached them to, what's
6: the deal? But You used to be kind of buddies with Tenet, right? So- Look at it this way.
7: They've been able to get through a joint house investigation committee. And get through the 9 11 Commission. And this has never come out. They got away with it. They're not going to tell you, even if you waterboard (laughs) them.
0: But what was the point of Alex Station telling the FBI that the two alleged hijackers were in the US on August the 22nd? What was the point on August the 28th of Dina Corsi getting the permission of the NSA to tell the coal criminal agents about Al Madar's links to the Yemen hub and his travel to Kuala Lumpur? What was the point of the cia's passing the identification of Khalid bin attached to the fbi on august the 30th in each case except the hijackers mere presence in the states and that only happened by accident the information didn't get to the people who really needed it and could use it the cold criminal investigators so what was the point of all this given the timing and what we know about the high expectation at that time of an attack and also given the fact that we've been given no other real rational explanation. In the absence of other evidence, it is fair to say that all this passing of information to FBI headquarters, but not to FBI field agents, allowed the blame to be shifted from the CIA and from specific CIA officials like Tom Wilshire, Richard Blee and others more Jr. to the FBI after the attack. They were given all this information and they did nothing. That was actually the general opinion after 9-11. The FBI got the blame and the CIA didn't, which was fair enough only on the most superficial reading of events. I ought to be clear here, the original decisions not to pass the various pieces of information and the subsequent action of passing them on were not a matter of turf wars between agencies and clashing personalities the way Lawrence Wright and many other writers have portrayed it. Wright focuses on the rivalry between a previous chief of Alex Station, the truly gross, Michael Scheuer, and an FBI counterpart of his, John O'Neill. All of that is a comforting explanation, but it means you can avoid the issue of intentional wrongdoing. It's a kind of common sense that lets CIA officials off the hook. But it doesn't answer the fact that as an intelligence official, if you withhold information, it's because you want to make use of it, to do something with it. When al and al-Hazmi originally arrived in the States, you could say that the intention was merely to monitor them, or perhaps to recruit them for use against Bin Laden. But by the time an attack was expected, in the summer and autumn of 2001, if you haven't got them off the streets yet, if they are still being used, if you are doing something with them, it is either as operatives or stool pigeons in an attack. By common consent, this was a time of grave danger. So whose reputation was being served by preventing the arrest of supposedly highly dangerous men? None of this was done in ignorance. As Tom Wilshire's 23rd of July email saying Almadar would be involved in the next big op shows, as Richard B's They're Coming Here comment shows, it was done in the knowledge of the danger it was courting. It really does seem as if the most likely explanation is that they wanted that potential violence realised. If I'm surmising what seems to me the ineluctable conclusion, I would nevertheless be all agog for the testimony, the facts, the evidence that would prove me wrong. It would still at the most be evidence of criminal negligence and moral lunacy far beyond what we've been told about in the comforting accounts, but even that hasn't been forthcoming in the past 17 years, and it's more like a theoretical possibility or someone's naive hope than a realistic possibility. I think the accidental forwarding by the FBI's New York office to Steve Bongart of the order to investigate the alleged hijacker's presence in the US has to be seen as a kind of gift, however dark, because Bongart's subsequent dispute with Dina Corsi shows how far Corsi was prepared to act in ways that suited Tom Wilshire and how far Alex Station was willing to go to make sure Almodar and Al-Hazmi were not apprehended. After the dispute was settled an intelligence investigation had begun, And Bongart had been stood down, things panned out pretty much as it can be envisaged they would have if Bongart had never found out that Almodar was in the US. Corsi gave the investigation routine priority, so the agent who was given the assignment, Robert Fuller, only had to start on the matter within 30 days of getting it. Fuller, whose first intelligence investigation this was, worked on another matter on the weekend of the 1st and 2nd of September, According to him, Corsi had not conveyed any urgency about this investigation. On the 4th of September, Amadars' visa was revoked because of his involvement in terrorist activities. The next day, amazingly, an instruction to airport inspectors to detain him if he tried to catch an international flight was taken off their database. So was some advice that he was to be considered armed and dangerous. But what really mattered was Fuller's investigation. He claimed after 9-11 that he had consulted a commercial database called ChoicePoint, which is now part of LexisNexis. But ChoicePoint's CEO said there had been no searches for the two men, which is all the worse because it did contain information on Al-Hazmi. The National Crime Information Centre database, which Fuller also said he had searched, had information on Al-Hazmi's various cars. But Fuller was probably just covering his ass, and anyway he had been given no indication of how urgent this might be. If he had pulled out all the stops, he might have got more interventions like Dina Corsi's last intervention in this case. Fuller suggested contacting Saudi Arabian Airlines for al credit card details, since he'd flown in with them on the 4th of July. But Corsi told him it would not be prudent to do so. Hard to understand why, but all of a piece with her putting agents off the trail since June. Fuller did nothing with the case from Thursday the 6th until Sunday the 9th. On Monday the 10th, he drafted a lead to the FBI Los Angeles office to investigate a number of matters, since that was where the two men had flown into originally. And the lead was sent sometime the following day, when it was far too late. This was the day when, as Blee predicted in July, a more or less simultaneous attack at multiple locations happened, as he put it, here in America. And as Tom Wilshire predicted in July, one of the named hijackers was Khalid Almodar, who Wilshire knew had been in the States for at least the past three weeks, without Wilshire saying a word about his prediction. So there you have it. I think the facts recounted here add up to a difference that makes a difference in the usual impressionistic account of so-called intelligence failures. Once again, all this is annotated at my website, roryoconnorjournalist.com, and please do support me at patreon.com forward slash Rory O'Connor. I will say that one excellent resource that I had recourse to in making this podcast was Kevin Fenton's great book, Disconnecting the Dots, subtitled How CIA and FBI Officials Helped Enable 9-11 and Evaded Government Investigations. It was published by Trine Day, an Oregon publisher, in 2011, and it's available for roughly 20 euros from the book depository. The harmonica music in this show was performed by Eric van den and was recorded by Daniel Nichols. I've linked to the excellent podcast that Daniel and Eric recorded on my website and encourage everyone to listen to it. Talk to you soon.